One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Chapter 34, Priori Incantatem. Wormtail approached Terry, who scrambled to find his feet to support his own weight before the ropes were untied. Wormtail raised his new silver hand. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So Matt, we have a Harry Potter pilgrimage coming up in September that I'm so excited about. We're going to be talking about the theme of wandering. And... I just like can't tell you how excited I am to go on beautiful walks in Northern England this time of year. I just like can't imagine a more beautiful thing in the world. It is going to be every BBC miniseries I've ever watched come to life. Like I'm, I'm probably going to heal animals <laughs> and solve crimes and marry landed gentry all on this pilgrimage. Exciting. That sounds like a great pilgrimage. Everybody go to readingandwalkingwith.com to find out more. And then, Matt, we have an exciting Every Flavored Bean conversation today. I'm very excited. Harry is like in emotional distress and physical distress in All kinds of distress. this chapter. And he suddenly hears Phoenix song, and it gives him hope. And so we are going to talk about songs that are like Phoenix song to us. It's playing in my head right now, and I, 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 have, a new, I have a new trick. I'm going to play it in my head before every 30-second recap. <laughs> From now on, it's going to change my life. And you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. So, Vanessa, this week we are talking about the theme of conspiracy, and you have a story about conspiracy for us. Yeah. So, my dad got diagnosed with a brain tumor when he was 42 years old. And I think that I used to always talk about it in terms of how old I was. I was eight when he was diagnosed. And now that I'm close to 42, I, I'm thinking about it more in terms of like, oh, he was so young. And so when he was 42, you know, he, he had all these symptoms. He, you know, was having spots and he was having these terrible headaches. And they went to a neurologist who quickly sent them to, quote unquote, the best neurosurgeon in Los Angeles. And the surgeon was like, we have to operate essentially today. You're going to go blind. And this is pushing on your pituitary gland. Like, that this is like pretty actively harming you. And so within a few days, my dad had brain surgery. And then a couple of years later, his symptoms came back. And so they went back to that neurologist. And the neurologist said, huh, you know, looking at my dad's scan saying, yeah, the, the tumor grew back. 
but can I ask why you didn't have radiation? Like, why did you opt out of radiation after the first surgery? And my parents were like, what? Radiation? Huh? And they were like, well, yeah, it, it's inevitable that this tumor was going to grow back. Did you guys decide not to do radiation because you're so young? Or, And my parents were like, nobody talked to us about radiation. So the neurologist was like, okay, well, let's partner you with another surgeon and make sure that radiation is part of your treatment plan. And my parents obviously were livid, right? Because now my dad is 45, still has three little kids, and now needs a second brain surgery and radiation. And because this wasn't treated properly the first time, right, the tumor had grown in a way that my dad's sight was further compromised. And so my father hasn't been able to work since he was 45 because of this, you know, medical mistake. And my parents in one of the meetings of the neurologist were like, what can we do in order to address this? And they were thinking about suing this other surgeon. And the neurologist was just like, you're not going to get anybody in California who will testify against this man. Like, there is no point in you trying to sue him. He is one of the most respected neurosurgeons. And like, you're just not, you're not going to find any respectable doctor who will say anything bad about him. And so my question is, can there be a conspiracy without conspiring? Because I think my parents felt like this was a conspiracy, right? That they could not address this other doctor, that he was entirely protected by all sorts of systems, including just this like sense of loyalty, which I understand that doctors have for each other, given that doctors often feel like they can't make a mistake because it'll ruin their careers. And But I wonder if a series of circumstances <laughs> and just like pressures and insurance and the lack of support systems for doctors when they do make a mistake. Basically, can situations conspire when people do not? Was this a conspiracy? Because it absolutely felt like one to my family. Thanks for that story and thanks for sharing it, Vanessa. I, I think there can be and there was one. That's why your family felt like there was one. And I think that means we have to kind of expand or massage our understanding of conspiracy. Like, can there be a conspiracy without conspirators? That's what I meant. Yeah, I think what you're getting at is, is that, like, when we think of conspiracy, we think of, like, an evil plot. Right. Like, people getting together and, like, hatching, like, this complicated plan that will overthrow whatever, right? Like, that's when we think about conspiracy theories. That definition of the word, as we make our way to etymology corner, Ooh. that definition of the word actually doesn't come into usage until, like, the 14th century. This idea of an evil plot. The, the Latin word conspirare just means like to breathe together or to have the same spirit. Oh, wow. Right? So it's, it's, it's actually just more like a kind of teamwork thing. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the doctors, like all these doctors saying you will not find a credible or respectable doctor who will testify against this man. Those are folks who just their interests are too shared mm -hmm. with this guy. They're breathing the same air somehow. Right. Where they aren't going to do the right thing, honestly. Right. For your family because they have other interests that they share with this other doctor that they're going to protect and preserve, right? And so, like, it doesn't feel like hatching an evil plot together kind of conspiracy, but in the sense of, like, sharing interests and sharing a spirit, which bears out as a bad outcome for your family, like, that is kind of like a conspiracy, not in the evil plan sense or evil plot sense, but in that more archaic or ancient sense. Yeah, and what's frustrating, right, is that, like, this man, this surgeon, just, like, had enough power that he didn't even need to conspire, right? Like his power 
was conspiring on its own. He was, you know, the head of neurosurgery at a top hospital, and everybody was just afraid of him enough that the conspiring happened around him. And you can't imagine a different kind of person who is like, no, I always want to be held accountable for my mistakes, right? And who like sets an emotional tone that a doctor would say, do you know what? He's the kind of person who would really want to hear about this. Like, you know, let's talk to him. There wasn't conspiring. And yet there was something about this man that like he didn't even need that back room. Right. He wasn't like he didn't even need to actively plot to right. keep your family silent because the the world around him had conspired to create the conditions where it was not a concern. Yeah. Right. He didn't have he didn't need to have a plan. Well, Matt, we've all conspired against you and it's your turn to do a 30 second recap. We had a meeting last night. Are you ready? No. On your mark. Get set. Go. So Wormtail comes with his his shiny hand and he cuts the ropes and then they give him he gets his wand and he's and Voldemort's like let's go Harry and he cruciates him and it's very painful and he stops and he's like okay now I want you to bow and he's like I'm not gonna bow I'm never gonna bow I will not conspire with your plan to make me subservient and he stands up and he's like Spelliarmus and then like there's a the big rays shoot at each other and then the light goes back and forth and back and forth and then eventually goes to Voldemort and then people are coming out of the wand and it's it's uh, all the people that he killed and especially his dad who comes back and says this is the plan you got to run and they break and he runs and he grabs the cup poor key just before gets killed that's so good please count me in three two one go matt the only thing that i feel like you miss is that cedric is like harry please bring my body back to your parents and so harry risks a lot in order to bring cedric's body back because he can accio the port key but he can't accio cedric's body so he has to run but harry's dad is like don't worry we've got you covered And Harry does so much to dodge getting killed in the scene. He, like, dives behind a a gravestone, even though he's still on a broken ankle this entire time. And he's just amazing. And he's so brave. That was really excellent, Vanessa. It was polished, almost like you'd done it before. Thank you. So, Matt, one of the first places where we see conspiracy in this chapter, right, from the very beginning of the chapter, is that there's this conspiracy of silence. Arguably... One way to look at this scene is that there are 30 adults standing around watching one man torture a child, and yet nobody does anything, right? Harry is still tied to Voldemort's father's gravestone, but he's going to be untied so that Voldemort and Harry can, according to Voldemort, somehow have a fair fight because Harry's mom isn't here to help this time. And you would think that one of these people would be like, him, this feels wrong. You're about to murder a child. I'm not sure this is a fair fight. His ankle is broken. I Like any number of things. It's not like they've all looked around and been like, hey guys, we're not gonna say anything, right? There was no backroom meeting filled with cigar smoke where this was decided. There's just this conspiracy of silence. Yeah, I think that's right. One of the things that's really interesting here is we don't actually know what's inside the heads of all these Death Eaters. We have a sense that they're all there for different reasons. I mean, some are totally loyal to Voldemort and totally bought into his plan. Others are scared. I mean, they were not good people maybe during the first war and maybe are not still good people. But some of them, you get the sense they would not be disappointed if Voldemort didn't come back. But the Dark March showed up and now they're scared that not showing up will be worse for them than showing up. And in fact, that's what Voldemort said in the last chapter. These folks who haven't showed up are going to pay, right? And then you have Wormtail, who we hear and 
Voldemort say in the last chapter only turns to Voldemort out of desperation and is loyal only out of fear and desperation. So they all have different things in their head. They have different reasons for being there. None of them knows the plan. You know, in the sense of the word that we've had since the 14th century, like none of them know the evil plan. They haven't hatched this plan together. You know, Wormtail and Voldemort have kind of hatched it together, but we get the sense in the last chapter that Voldemort knew what was going on and Wormtail's just a lackey. They weren't planning together, right? They're not a conspiracy in the sense of us all working together in some complicated plan to overthrow the ministry. On the contrary, they're all just there for different reasons, and they have these shared interests with Voldemort. Those interests are enforced by Voldemort through fear, through intimidation, through violence, sometimes through shared cruelty, (laughs) right? But in a lot of different ways. And so they show up and they participate because they're, in that classic sense, breathing the same air as him. They're just like, okay, the best thing for me right now, the best thing for us right now is to close ranks, as they literally do in this chapter. They get closer together, they circle around, as Voldemort asks, and they wait to watch Voldemort kill Harry. And, you know, some of them laugh, some of them, you can tell they're, again, I'm not trying to say that these, these Death Eaters, any of them are having big crises of conscience, but their silence is a sign of the fact that, you know what, the best thing for me is to do what Voldemort wants. But I do think there's a huge difference between the conspiracy of silence and like a conspiracy of laughter, right? Because, and this might be a distinction, not that we get one, but a distinction between the Death Eaters who, who was just sitting there because they're scared and who was laughing at the sadism of... Voldemort sort of playing with his food, right, as Harry says, before he eats it. And I'm just interested in this, like, by degrees thing, because I absolutely think I am a part of a million conspiracies of silence, right? Like, I don't know how to get between where I am and, like, using my house as a homeless shelter in the winter, but I sure haven't looked into it, right? Like, I'm just part of this conspiracy of silence where we don't see homelessness in Massachusetts as, like, a humanitarian crisis. And, you know, it, like, feels too big to me. And I'm definitely not standing in a circle silently watching, you know, a vulnerable person getting tortured. But, like, where do we start being like, oh, I'm not a part of the conspiracy, right? Like, I'm just a person living my life. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there may be Death Eaters in the circle who hate that they're there. We don't know. Right. But are scared of being killed. Right. And they're like, I have to make a choice. This is the choice I'm making. But it still it still supports the action. I think that's that's the difficult thing. That silence still still does support the action. And just to go back to your story, like I don't know who every respected neurosurgeon in Los Angeles was when your dad was forty five. I'm sure they're telling themselves a story also of like why it would not be the best thing, why it's not the right thing. And these negotiations are difficult and complicated. And and I think that, you know, none of us is pure or should aspire to or hope to or demand purity of ourselves or of others. But I think what we can do, and I think this is what your example really helps us do, is be really self-reflective so we don't congratulate ourselves too much, right? So that we are aware of this conspiracy of silences that we participate in so that we can resist them or speak up when we need to. And that's one of the really interesting things I think about this chapter also is that People do eventually kind of speak up, right? And the person who speaks up is Harry, of course, because all these people who are subservient to Voldemort's wishes, doing what he wants them to do because they're afraid of him, because they have all these other interests, because they're breathing the same air as him. You know, it's funny, I felt like echoes of our 
sacred imagination practices from our last few chapters when the last few chapters have been in the in this graveyard and I could smell the musty earth and this <laughs> definition of conspiracy about breathing the same mm-hmm. air. I was like, oh yeah, like there's this there is this smell here. Voldemort immediately transitions to demanding that Harry participate in this conspiracy of silence, mm-hmm. as you would say, or or just this conspiracy of all being subservient to whatever he wants to do. Because he doesn't just kill Harry. He tortures him and then he says, before I kill you, I want you to bow to me. Mm-hmm. Right? I want you to, sh- to demonstrate that you also are going to do whatever I ask you to do. Because that is really the general interest. This is the air we breathe, whatever Voldemort wants. And Harry refuses. Voldemort has to use a spell to bend Harry's back. And that's when some of the Death Eaters laugh because they can see that, you know, Voldemort's going to do what he wants to do. But Harry still resists, still resists. And finally, like when he's imperious, he resists the imperious curse and stands up and shouts, I won't. Right. Like he actually speaks out and says, like, I'm not going to be part of this conspiracy, like even though it's going to cost me death. And it's interesting that Harry's resistance like does initiate this whole this whole sequence of events where the Death Eaters can't be silent anymore. Right, because this whole crisis happens, which we'll describe in a second, and then we we hear in the text that the Death Eaters are shouting, asking for instructions. What do you want us to do, Voldemort? Like now they don't know the plan, and they need a plan, but they also know that they have to to somehow serve him, and it all gets very complicated and messy. And that complication and mess is exactly the opportunity that Harry needs, along with a little bit of magic. Yeah, I mean Voldemort, we know this, right? His downfall is going to be underestimating people not understanding why he can't have total control. And I know that Voldemort is a monster and that we're like not meant to really see him on earth except, you know, in like some real despot whatever situations. But something that rings true to me is the horror of watching someone with power realizing that they can't exert their power in that situation. Like, I find that that is when people are their scariest to me, like when they are sort of reaching for power because they are entitled to it, right? Mm -hmm. And Voldemort sort of loses his mind here because he should be able to control this child. And it is actually what ends up bringing him down is that he keeps underestimating what a lack of obeisance and obedience is going to be, right? Like he just... Yep. He he's like no, but I'm good at magic. I can force him to bow, and it's like yeah, but you can't you can't force everyone to do everything. Yeah, it's not just underestimating Harry, but also underestimating the dead. Right, exactly. So what happens in the chapter is they have these like competing spells. Voldemort tries to kill Harry. Harry tries to expel the wand. The spells meet in the air. We have this very kind of dramatic moment where the spells meet, and eventually Harry's. Bell like kind of goes into Voldemort's wand and out of the wand arises shades or ghosts of all the people he most recently murdered. And just what's really interesting about it is like as in all other things, as even with the Death Eaters and Wormtail in this scene, Voldemort thinks of all these other people as instruments to be used towards Mm -hmm. his own conspiratorial plans, right? He doesn't think of them as fully formed human beings with their own agency, with their own power, with their own value and worth. And it's that incapacity to recognize it, which comes back and upends his plan because they emerge from the wand. And we hear Bertha Jorkin speak for the first time since we saw her mumbling at the beginning of this chapter and talk to Harry. And we hear Cedric talk to Harry and we hear his dad talk to Harry and give him a plan, give him courage and give him a plan because these human beings were not just objects on the way to Voldemort's immortality. They were human beings in their own right. And Harry listens to them. 
And it's, it's listening to them as human beings, even if dead ones, even the echoes of their voice is what gives him both a plan and the courage to resist and to get away. You're right. Like this, this is so consistent about Voldemort and it's also so consistently his downfall. Every time his plan goes wrong, it's because he thinks of people or other creatures as instruments to be used. And it's when they assert themselves as creatures in their own right, humans in their own right, that his plan falls apart. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, pros is made for people not hair and skin types, personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. And... My understanding of Priorian Cantatum, which I have not taken charms in a really long time, so please forgive me if I'm misunderstanding oh, everyone. No. What's coming out of Voldemort's wand is all of the last spells that he's done. And so you can imagine if at some point he had done something kind for someone, right? He'd like, I don't know why Oregon Trail came to mind, but he like conjured a rowboat for someone to ford a stream, right? Like that person and that rowboat would come out of his wand and some like an asset to him would come out of his wand. But his like absolute hate and his absolute profanity, right, is the only thing that's coming out of this wand because that is all that he has done. And so he's being brought down by his own sword here. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that we also see that there is like this kind of deeper magic happening because, of course, you know, Harry doesn't actually use the spell 
priori incantatum, right? And actually, the spells that come out of the wand are not necessarily the most recent ones. Like, he made a hand for Wormtail. That's not what comes out of the wand. What comes out of the wand are the people he killed. Like, there's something about this encounter is between, like, his hatred and Harry's hope or something else. Or Harry's memory, his willingness to listen and remember the dead. And Voldemort's absolute indifference to these people he's killed. That's what's actually at contest here. And the fact that those folks come out of the wand, the people he killed, they come out of the wand and conspire with Harry, maybe in that broader sense of the term, not towards an evil plot, but share a spirit with him, share a sense of memory and of resilience and resistance with him, like that that comes out of the wand, I think is really important and is the deeper magic of the spell that Harry cast, which he doesn't even know he's casting. He thinks he's saying Expelliarmus, right? And what he's actually doing is is calling forth memory. No, Matt, the hand does come out, but even that is a violence, right? It's really quick. It's like half a sentence, but... Yeah, you're right. Like, the hand does come out. But I still think you're right. I think that it's a deeper magic, right? But I also think he would be helped in this moment if he had ever done anything kind for anyone. Yeah, that's right. I think so. That's right. Yeah. And we see the inverse of that, right? We see the inverse of there being a kind of conspiracy of kindness or warmth or care or love for Harry at the end of this scene. And part of what's so beautiful about it is that it's unexpected, but the first evidence of that is the Phoenix song, right? It's not anyone who shows up. And I find that really interesting because there's a sentence, you know, where Harry says, there was no hope no help to be had, right? And I wonder if that is him feeling like there's no conspiracy to protect me, right? Like, they don't even know that I'm not in the maze yet. Like, there isn't a search committee out for me. And yet, like, this sort of conspiracy does come, right? Like, you know, the phoenix comes and then out of the wand comes all this protection. But, you know, there's a part of the film, Hotel Rwanda, which is based on incidents around the Rwandan genocide that haunts me, which is the moment where this man says, no one is coming for us. There will be no rescue. And just like when you realize that there's no help to be had, right, that there's no conspiracy in your favor, that you have so little power, that there are no forces at work behind you that you can't see that are maybe going to come to get you. But, right, like, I'm obsessed with the story of Elizabeth Smart. (laughs) Elizabeth Smart was this, I think she was 12 or 13-year-old girl who was kidnapped by this man who was, you know, thought he was a prophet. And the Mormon community, the Utah police, and her mother, right, her family, just was constantly searching for her. And she got rescued because she was recognized by someone who'd sort of seen a poster and had seen this news story. But Elizabeth Smart, you know, she, in her memoir, talks about how she knew they were looking for her. And it wasn't the kind of hope that entirely sustained her. One of the things that she talks about sustaining her, she was like, if they don't find me, he's 30 years older than I am, he's going to die before me, and then I will be free. And so she had this hopelessness, no help to be had feeling that Harry had. But then in her more hopeful moments, she was like, no, my mom is looking for me. And it's heartbreaking to me that Harry is like, there is no help to be had, that feeling. And it's, I think, yeah. part of why we love these books is because the phoenix comes. I believe that Harry 
believes that people back at Hogwarts who love him would do all they could. Yeah. I just, he doesn't have a lot of confidence in their plan, right? Like, this is <laughs> when we get to this, the plan part of conspiracy. And again, we're using conspiracy not in the evil plot sense, because obviously these folks we're talking about are working for good, just in the looser sense of like people who have the same share of spirit are trying to work together towards the end. You know, I think that he thinks Mad Eye Moody's on his side now, although he has the wrong idea. He believes in Dumbledore. He believes these folks care about him. But as we as critical readers and as Harry learns as he keeps going through the books, like their plans are not always good and they don't always do a good job. And if he lacks confidence here, we see this in earlier books as well. He's like, no one's going to do this for me. I have to do this on my own. So you're right. Like, even if there is a team of people back at Hogwarts, they're not going to get there in time. (laughs) So there's that helplessness. What's really beautiful about this is that it's the dead who come to his aid. Like there are people, even in memory, people in the past who are still able to rally him to courage, who are still able to give him insight into foresight and how he can escape this situation, who can still speak to him morally and say, like, take Cedric back, take his body with you, right? You know, this is a book of magic, so I'm not sure how we want to read this scene. If these are literally ghosts coming out, if these are memories that in Harry's mind that he's conjuring, whatever, and it doesn't really matter the dead are still acting upon him, right? The dead are still acting upon and through him and leading him to do the things, conspiring with him to do the things he needs to do, to have courage, to take Cedric back, and to run. And I think that that gets to the heart of this pre-14th century idea of conspire, right? The definition of breathing together, of when in moments of hopelessness can we try to remember that we're breathing air of other people who've come before us and Mm -hmm. but like also when is it important to remember like no help is coming the word for breath and spirit is the same in latin so it's to share breath it's also to share spirit Mm. you know conspiracy with spirit another way you can think about this is in those moments of hopelessness who do you look to who are the people that you share spirit with like when Mm. i think that also is where harry's resistance comes from he doesn't feel any help is coming but that sense of resistance in him i am not going to bow to voldemort is because he remembers that his mom did not bow to voldemort his dad did not bow to voldemort like those echoes and those memories are in him and he shares that spirit even if he doesn't know they're literally going to come out of the wand as shades in a few moments and help rescue him like that still is in him in some fundamental way and he shares that spirit Vanessa, we're going to move on to a new spiritual practice this week. It's one we introduced earlier in this book, which is the Four Alliances. As a reminder to everyone, this reading practice comes out of the Buddhist tradition, specifically the Madhyamaka tradition, founded by Nagarjuna and prominent, especially in Tibet. This is a four-step interpretive process. It's especially useful like when the meaning of a passage is ambiguous. It's called the Four Alliances because it's trying to think about what we should rely on to get the best possible meaning. But sort of like Lectio Divina and Havruta, it works with all kinds of passages. So you've selected a passage for us, which I'm going to read now. This is a passage where the shades are coming out of Voldemort's wand. And specifically, this is right after Frank Bryce emerges from the wand. He was a real wizard then, the old man said, his eyes on Voldemort. Killed me, that one did. You fight him, boy. But already, yet another head was emerging. And this head, gray as a smoky statue, was a woman's. Harry, both arms shaking now as he fought to keep his wand still, saw her drop to the ground and straighten up like the others, staring. 
The shadow of Bertha Jorkins surveyed the battle before her with wide eyes. Don't let go now, she cried. And her voice echoed like Cedric's as though from very far away. Don't let him get you, Harry. Don't let go. So there are four steps in the practice of the four alliances. And the first step to arriving at the meaning of the passage is traditionally called the teaching and not the teacher. The way we interpret this first step is just to think about what is the question for you that arises in this passage? Like when you make this passage about yourself, when you think about it, how it relates to your own life, what question is arising for you? I mean, the first is just like, how do they figure it out so fast who the good guy is? Right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But like, that seems like the right question in my life, right? Or a live question in my life. Just earlier today, I am having a disagreement with someone who we are working with. And I'm really, I get obsessed with this. Like, am I being the good guy? Am I being the bad guy? I can't tell. I want to be the good guy, right? And like, are we two good, reasonable people having a reasonable misunderstanding? Or are they being a bad guy? So like, this is amazing, the clarity with which, I mean, it makes sense. (laughs) Like Bertha and Frank would think Voldemort is the bad guy because he was the man who murdered them. So it makes sense that he's like, right? He's like, (laughs) bad guy. (laughs) But it's just, there's so- Child, grown man that looks like a snake with red eyes. (laughs) Okay, maybe it's not impressive. But it's- (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like just this clarity of like, I'm rooting for you is so pure and so beautiful to me. Yeah, I think, I mean, my question is related. I think that, you know, you asked how they know who Voldemort is and mine is- kind of like how do they know who harry is i mean frank price doesn't immediately intuits that the child is the good one here which as you say is probably a reasonable assumption but (laughs) for a number of reasons i've just been thinking about ancestors a lot recently and just my ancestors i think it's partly because my family's taking a trip to japan and my mom recently died so i'm thinking about like people who came before and i just think about like all these people in my history who never met me who didn't know me but who are also pulling for me you know what I mean? Who like, mm-hmm. and I'm the ancestor, I hope, of someone in the future who like, I will never meet and I don't know, but I'm pulling for them too. And there's something about them emerging from the wand and just being on Harry's side, even though they don't know him, even though he's a stranger to them. I mean, Bertha kind of sees the scar on his head or something and knows that it's Harry or knows what he looks like. But you know what I mean? Like, there's something about like, we have these generations of people behind us that are on our side, that we are their hopes. We are what can be carried forward from their lives. And yeah, I think that, it's not a surprise that these folks are inspiring to Harry and that also the people who end up emerging are his literal ancestors as well in a Mm -hmm. few moments. Yeah. So the second step in the four alliances is called the meaning, not the letter traditionally. The way we interpret that in our practice is to say like, what do you think the passage wants you to do rather than what it wants you to know? Like this step in the practice is about thinking about practical wisdom. Like the passage should lead us to do something, not just to understand something. So What does this make you want to do when you read the passage? So if I'm just looking at this passage, right, in the moment before Harry's parents come out and, like, give very practical help, what it's making me want to do is, like, cheer and not insert myself, Hmm. right? Like, be like, yeah, okay, you can do it. But, like, Bertha's not getting involved. She's not giving really practical advice, right? She's just like, don't give up, don't give up. And I think that there are often moments where we want to get involved, but actually our job is to cheer. What about you, Matt? I mean, it makes me want to like try to develop some kind of relationship with the 
these ancestors from the past, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know how you do that, barring access to a wand that can draw out their shades so they can speak to you. But I think there are ways, right? Like there are ways to try to imagine those ancestors, call them forth, try to think about them, think about what they might have anticipated of the future and how you might live into that. Thinking about ancestors is one thing it makes me want to do. The third step of the four reliances is called the definitive, not the interpreted. In our practice, the way we do that is we think about what the deeper meaning of the passage is. It's as analogous to like the sod in Pardes, right? Like what's the more hidden meaning, the thing that's kind of under the surface? So what, what do you think the secret or the deeper meaning of this passage is? Maybe I'll go first this time because I think it builds off my answer to the last question, which was like, oh, get to know my ancestors so I can know what their vision of the future was that I can see if I can advance it. But then I also thought, or maybe resist it because they're... <laughs> You know, I'm sure not all my ancestors were great people or had a, a good vision of the future or one that I would even support. And and I actually think a, a lot of our task when we reckon with our history is not just, you know, thinking about all the goodness in our histories, our ancestral histories, but also thinking about the difficult parts of it. The, the people who were scoundrels, the people who, you know, supported slavery or or participated in things that we oppose and lament owning our history is part of that too so the the hidden thing here is that it's not all good news if we turn to our ancestors and try to remember those histories that if everything's coming out of the wand everything's coming out of the wand right and we have to reckon with all that stuff so how about you vanessa it makes me want to default to the small person right whenever i'm like trying to figure out what side to be on it's just like default to the kid default to the person with less power and yes we can be wrong and people with less power can be up to nefarious things also. But I think it is, if I'm imagining myself as Frank Bryce coming out of the wand, it's like adult child. Let's just side with the kid until we get more information. So the fourth step of the four alliances is called wisdom over reason. The way we think about this, it's very similar to the second step. But instead of talking about what the passage would have you do rather than have you know, like this is more experiential, right? It's the idea that experience is different than understanding. So like, are there any things in your history or your own experiences that this passage reminds you of? Is there something from your own life that this passage is surfacing for you? It's really just a live question because I, all of my ancestors were Orthodox Jews. And so I think Hmm. they would be horrified by my life. Hmm. And (laughs) as all of our listeners know, I really spend a lot of my life trying to honor, you know, I have, I mean, like dozens of family members who died in the Holocaust and I am married to a German man and we lived together before we got married and I'm an atheist chaplain and I just want to figure that out (laughs) a little bit. So it's just reminding me of, you know, I have a picture of my great grandmother that survived the war. And I just like, I know she would be horrified by me. And like, I, yeah, I know I'm just supposed to reflect, but also I, I've done Lectio for too long. I feel called to like try to reconcile with that a little bit and complicate that. Cause maybe she wouldn't, maybe she'd, you know, have a moment of be like, what's going on? And then be like, do you know what? That's awesome. I'm proud of you. What about you, Matt? I just think about your, you think about cheerleading and think about like, who are my cheerleaders in my life. And it just makes me reflect upon, I have had that experience of people just kind of supporting me and cheering for me, even if they don't understand what's going on, they're on my side, sort of like Frank and Bertha don't understand what's going on. And it just makes me reflect that often in those situations, I'm probably not as patient with my cheerleaders as I ought to be. Like often, 
maybe not out loud, but in my head, but even sometimes out loud, I'm just kind of like, well, you actually don't understand. You would always say that about me because you always support me. <laughs> right? Like, but actually, that's exactly what I need in those moments, is, <laughs> right? Like, people who just support me because they support me instead of me being like super critical and saying, well, you just don't understand. You would just support me regardless. Like, that's such a terrible thing. <laughs> so, to be more patient with my cheerleaders. So thanks, Vanessa. Thanks for reintroducing our For Reliance practice to the podcast. Thank you. This is such a fun, this is such a fun practice, Matt, and I'm really grateful. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Our voicemail this week is from Rebecca. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. My name is Rebecca, and I'm a teacher. I just listened to your episode on vulnerability and am reflecting on the moment when Barty Crouch Jr. takes Neville aside after experiencing the traumatic event of seeing the Cruciatus curse performed. Obviously, we don't know Crouch's motivation, and we can assume they're nefarious, but... I can't help but wonder if he chose to extend Neville a bit of kindness because Neville is a pureblood. There is a plethora of research showing that students of color, especially black students, are punished at higher rates and in more extreme fashions than white students in schools today. Students of color are also expected to be more mature and more resilient. As a white teacher, this is something I'm constantly reflecting on, and it made me wonder if students who are not pure blood at Hogwarts experience these traumas often, either through Defense Against the Dark Arts class or a history class, and are not extended similar kindnesses because of their identity. I'm curious what you think about this, and I want to extend a blessing to students at Hogwarts and in our real-life classrooms who are working their way through unfair systems. Thank you. Rebecca, thanks for your voice memo. Also, thanks for the really like critical and engaged work that you're doing as a teacher. I think it's it's really commendable that you have this sort of self-reflection. When I've read this chapter, I read it as like a special cruelty that Barty Crouch Jr. is having towards Neville that because he knows that his parents were tortured, he's going to actually play it up. But it strikes me that Neville 
especially with this traumatized history, is probably very susceptible to kind of grooming towards evil, right? Like to to becoming desensitized to that kind of evil. And and he is pure blood. So maybe Barty Crouch Jr. sees him as a person that could be brought into the fold, mm-hmm. brought onto their side, exploited for that reason. It could exploit his trauma in that way. I hadn't had that reading before, and I think it's really wise reading. And the way you connect it, Rebecca, to pedagogical practices and malpractices in, in the contemporary context is is really helpful and wise. So thank you. Yes, thank you so much, Rebecca. And I just feel like your voicemail is pointing us to how complicated power dynamics are and that Neville is disempowered in all of these ways. And yet, because he's a pureblood, potentially has different kinds of power. So thank you so much. Now's the time in the episode when we remember those in our community who have been loved and lost. John Joel Gates Cameron, 88, a loving grandfather and proud Scotch-Canadian. Peter Sloop, 62, who endured much but was endlessly positive. Ted Finice, 82, a wonderful husband and grandfather. Tio Chente, 95, a crazy professor who was beloved by and inspired all who knew him. Let light perpetual shine upon them. Vanessa, now it's time to do blessings. Who do you want to bless in this chapter? I want to bless Harry. There's a moment in the chapter where he's like, oh, man, Voldemort is going to use Avada Kedavra, and I only have Expelliarmus. And that's that's not the same. And I just sometimes <laughs> feel that way, <laughs> and I feel like we all do, right? Like with climate change, you're like, Oh, there's climate change, and all I've got is like recycling and biking. That's like all I've got. <laughs> and it just doesn't feel like enough. That's a really hard feeling. And so I want to bless Harry for that. What about you, Matt? I think I want to bless Bertha. We've blessed Bertha several times in this novel just because she's so silenced. I mean, she disappears at the beginning of the book, but also she never gets to speak for herself throughout the book. We have these you know, few words from her right at the beginning before she's killed. And then we don't hear from her, and that silence is difficult, especially since we know what's happened. And this chapter, she speaks, and she doesn't have many lines in this novel, but the lines she has are, don't give up. Right? Okay. She tells Harry, don't give up. She's got one thing to say. Everyone's forgotten about her. She died a really terrible way. And the first thing she has to say when she comes out is just, don't give up. That's that's great. It's great. So blessings for Bertha. Don't let him get you, Harry. Don't let go. Ugh, it really gives me goosebumps. Yeah. Next week, we're reading book four, chapter 35, Veritas Serum, through the theme of wandering with special guest Colette Potts. Friends, we just want to remind you before we give our thanks and credits that you can review us on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, you can also sign up for ad-free episodes. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. 
Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas and are newly going to be executive produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister, who is in the studio with us today. Zoomio, Zoomdio. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Rebecca for their voicemail, to Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of those they have loved and lost this week. Priori incantatem. <laughs> was that bad? <laughs> Did no, you, was that a laugh it was or just a very precise. No, I was laughing okay. at you. Incantatum. Okay. Should I do it again? It was great. No, it was perfect. Okay. It just amused me.